This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. The word comes to us today from Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20, continuing into chapter 9, verse 17. Again, Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the flesh of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between you, between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and prepare them to receive it. 
not only these words which are here, but the ultimate reality that they point us to, which is the redemption that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of this great redemption, I pray that we would live in your world as you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible tells one story. It does more than that. It has within that one story many smaller stories that are the pieces which make up the larger story, as well as teachings concerning doctrine and life, prophecies concerning what God is to do concerning His people. But at its core, the Bible tells one story, and that is the story of God's glory through the redemption of a particular people in Jesus Christ. We saw this begin to unfold from these opening chapters of Genesis. God created a good world. He placed mankind, male and female, in the world to rule and to govern it and to have life and fellowship with God in the world according to a covenant of works or a covenant of life. Man was to obey God and would live forever with him. However, because of the fall, as we saw in what we confessed from the shorter catechism earlier, man lost that communion with God, is under his wrath, under the guilt of sin. Yet from the moment of that fall, God revealed his plan of redemption. You remember back in Genesis chapter 3 that there was to come from the seed of the woman one who would crush the serpents. This word of the serpent crusher was the inauguration of the covenant of grace by which God will save his people through a redeemer. This is one covenant that comprehends all of God's redemptive work after the fall but it is administered in various ways at various times. So here in our text today, we see another major installment of that covenant revelation. We see particularly the covenant as it is given to Noah, or the Noahic covenant as it is often called. And in it, we see the continued unfolding of God's redemptive revelation, pointing us towards the redemption to come in Christ, but also establishing principles by which we, his people, are to live. So we will look at God's covenant with Noah today in four points. First, covenant propitiation, which is what we see in chapter 9, verse 20, and the first part of verse 21. Propitiation being the turning away of wrath. This covenant making begins with the making of a sacrifice, recognizing the remaining need for atonement for sins. And then second, we will see covenant preservation, which is the rest of verse 21 and all of verse 22. Part of the Noahic covenant is preserving the earth from further great calamities, allowing for the world's continuation. And third, we see covenant purposes in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This covenant has particular aims and goals, and it places particular responsibilities on Noah and those who come after him. And then fourth and finally, we see covenant promises. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. What does God promise to his people in this covenant? So again, we have covenant propitiation, covenant preservation, 
covenant purposes and covenant promises. So first we look at covenant propitiation, which we see in chapter 8, verse 20, and then the first part of verse 21. So we pick up immediately where we left off last week, where Noah and his family and all the animals, after a nearly year-long ordeal, come out of the ark. Now, given that the world has essentially been remade, recreated at the time of the flood, what is done first when the people come out of the ark is going to be very important. It is going to sort of set the agenda for the new world that has come. You can think of something similar, for instance, when every four to eight years a new president of the United States takes office. There's all the talk about What's he going to do in his first 100 days? What's going to change immediately? What's going to set the agenda for the new government? Well, similarly, when Noah comes out of the ark as the head of the only family left on the earth, what actions he takes first are going to be very important. They're going to set the agenda, set the pattern by which life in the new world is going to go. Well, the very first recorded activity that we see after Noah and his family come out of the ark seems to set the agenda properly. His first act is an act of worship, particularly it is an act of building an altar and offering a sacrifice. Now, remember from last time that in addition to the pair of every kind of animals to continue their populations on the earth, Noah and his family brought extra clean animals more clean animals for their eating, but also for this purpose of sacrifice. Here we see that the first priority of Noah in the new world is not his own things, his own agenda, but God's things. Noah builds an altar and offers sacrifices as his first recorded act. Now, sacrifices can be offered at various times for various things. And it is likely here that Noah's sacrifices are probably given primarily as an offering of thanksgiving. God has brought him and his family safely through the calamity, safely through the flood, and so Noah acknowledges God's help and deliverance. But there is something more fundamental to any animal sacrifices, of which it appears here that Noah, in fact, offered several and that is that animal sacrifices require death and bloodshed. Which means that their most fundamental level, all animal sacrifices involve an acknowledgement of sin. There would have never been any such bloodshed if it were not for Adam's first sin. That blood is still shed in the new world after the flood demonstrates that while much evil has been blotted out from the earth in the flood, the new world is not going to be sinless. The new world is going to continue under the fall and its curse. The judgment of the old world in the time of Noah does not bring what the final judgment still to come will bring, which is a full and final removal of sin. So the offering of blood sacrifices by Noah contains the acknowledgement that sin still remains. There will be sin in the world after Noah. In fact, we won't have to wait very long to see it. But Noah is beginning in the right place. He is recognizing the need for sacrifice, the need for atonement for sin. There is a need for propitiation, the turning away of the wrath of God due for sin, of which just a small piece was seen in this global flood, this calamity poured out on the earth. 
So Noah makes an offering to God towards that end, that need for atonement, and also in thanksgiving for God's grace and mercy. Remember, Noah and his family were not brought through the flood by their works or by their obedience. They were brought through because Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we read in the first clause of verse 21 that this offering is found acceptable. It is a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now, this is analogical language speaking of God. God does not really smell things the way that we do. He does not need to be soothed because he does not change. He does not have emotions in the way that we do. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. He is simple. However, God has prescribed the means by which he is to be worshipped. And Noah knows this. He obeys this. And God is pleased with that which is done according to his will, what is done in faith. God accepts Noah's offering because it is brought in faith and acknowledgement of Noah's sin and God's mercy. Now what is significant in this initial act of sacrifice as it pertains to the covenant that is about to be made is that it shows that this is a gracious covenant. It begins with the acknowledgement of God's redeeming grace and atonement for man's sins. There is a lot of confusion as theologians look at covenants in the Bible and, and wonder, they ask questions like, well, is this particular covenant a grace covenant or a works covenant? So, for instance, there is a popular theory that the covenant made with Moses at Mount Sinai, we've been reading from the Ten Commandments the last couple of weeks, is not gracious, but it is a covenant of works. It is a law that the people must keep to earn their rewards, just as it was with Adam. But as we read the Ten Commandments, we have to pay attention to where they begin. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So the covenant, as with all covenants after the fall, begins with grace. God has delivered his people by his love and mercy and grace and the covenant then dictates, in light of this grace, in light of this mercy, what is to happen. And this covenant with Noah is similar. God has chosen Noah and his family by grace to be his people. He has delivered them, saved them, both spiritually and temporally, by grace. He has brought them out, brought them through sin and misery. So God's covenant mercy demands man's thankful obedience. When you recognize the mercy that God has poured out upon you as one of his children, the only fitting response is to love and honor and serve God and to do what he wills. So God has delivered Noah, and now we will see what Noah should do in his response in gratitude. What will God's world, what will God's people look like in light of this grace? And this brings us to our second point. After covenant propitiation, we see covenant preservation in the rest of verse 21 and then verse 22. We see how God responds to this sacrifice Noah brings. We see in our text that the Lord says these things in his heart, but it is prophetically communicated, at the very least to Moses who recorded this text, perhaps to Noah as well. 
The first thing that God communicates in his covenantal word is that he is going to preserve the earth. The Noahic covenant is a covenant that is particularly concerned with keeping the world alive, keeping it inhabitable, keeping it as a place for God's people. Now, in a certain sense, all people, whether they are God's people or not, will enjoy some fruition. They will enjoy some of the blessings of this covenant. While all who are present now at the time of the making of this covenant are Noah's family, and they are at least visibly members of the covenant of grace, we will before long see a division just as we saw in the old world. In Adam's family, we will see that some will rebel. Some will not continue in the covenant. There will once again be this division between the city of God and the city of man. But even those who belong to the city of man, God will allow them to live and enjoy the blessings of this life and the blessings of this world. This is a concept I introduced before called common grace. Although not all partake of redemptive grace that saves people from their sins and unto eternal life, all who do live in this world partake of at least a certain portion of God's blessing, of God's favor, even if they will not glorify God or give Him thanks for it. However, though there is a common and general scope of this covenant, this does not mean that it, unlike the other administrations of the covenant of grace, is not concerned with redemption and salvation. The primary reason for preserving and ordering and continuing the world is not for its own sake, but ultimately that redemption may come to God's people through Christ. To put it in the words of the theologian Herman Bovink, this covenant with Noah, with its universal preserving focus, quote, is rooted in God's grace and is most intimately bound up with the actual covenant of grace, because it sustains and prepares for it. So, the purpose of this common grace is to provide a world in which redemptive grace can come and function and flourish. But as this covenant is made with all people and all creatures, those who do not belong to God's people, those who do not experience that redemptive grace, will still taste of these blessings of common grace. As Bavink continues, this Noahic covenant is... A covenant of long-suffering made by God with all humans and even with all creatures. It limits the curse on the earth. It checks nature and curbs its destructive power. The awesome violence of water is reined in. A regular alternation of seasons is introduced. The whole of the irrational world of nature is subjected to ordinances that are anchored in God's covenant. So common grace is the vehicle for God's redemptive grace, which will eventually come to its highest realization in Jesus Christ, who is to come. That is God's ultimate purpose in ordering the world. That is the one story, the unified story that the Bible is telling. So this Noahic covenant provides life, provides seasons, provides order instead of the chaos of the flood, serving the purposes of redemption. We see in these last two verses of chapter 8 what God will do in the covenant to preserve the world. He will allow seed time and harvest. Though still difficult and cursed because of the fall, you can think back to chapter 3 and the curses after the fall given to Adam, 
how he will work the ground through thorns and weeds and eventually return to that dust, the conditions will still be right for man to grow food and to sustain life. We see that the cycle of time, days, nights, seasons will continue. We hear in our day a lot of environmental alarmism about how the earth is warming, the climate is changing, and we're headed towards some great disaster where there will be nothing but deserts or nothing but oceans, and there will be unbearable heat on the earth. Now, by all means, we should steward the earth and take care of it as we are able, but we also must recognize that it is God's hand of providence that rules over and preserves the earth. It's climates, it's seasons, time itself. So we do not need to fear when such hypothetical calamities are dangled before us. It is all in the Lord's hands. So, this preservation is God's role in the covenant. But we also see that man will have a role to play in this covenant. And this brings us to our next point. After covenantal propitiation and covenantal preservation, we come to covenantal purposes in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. We see that mankind is given particular purposes. He's given particular goals, instructions as to how he ought to live under this covenant. Now, a lot of what we see in this chapter may sound familiar because it is the same sort of blessings and the same sort of commands that came at creation. But it is important that we see them here because when we saw them before, we saw them on the other side of the fall. We saw them in man's state of innocence. We saw this in the sinless world. We see now that the dominion mandate given to man continues even after the fall, though with greater struggle and resistance and hostility than before. We see first that God blesses Noah and his sons, and he tells them something that he once told Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So here we see that man is again given the commission to multiply, to bear children, to continue the covenant through family lineage. The earth is still organized into families. This does not stop after the fall. It does not stop after the flood. Perhaps at this point, Noah and his family might have been inclined to wonder if the great multiplication on the earth before the flood brought the multiplication of wickedness. Was it because they multiplied that this calamity came? But God is clear here that the continued bearing of children and the continuing of the institution of the family were good things and that they were to go on after the flood. We also see that after the flood, man is still to exercise dominion over the creatures with God's help. We see in verse 2 that the creatures will fear man. If you ever come upon a wild animal, usually if it can, it will run away from you. It doesn't want to be around you. It has a fear of you. Animals that attack usually only do so if they feel they're trapped, if they don't believe they can escape. So man is given a particular place of rule and dominion over the animals, just as Adam was before in the garden. It's not just the fear of animals that they'll leave man alone, but other animals are able to be domesticated and to be used for human purposes. We'll get to more of those here in a moment. But man is given this particular place of rule over the animals, just as Adam was in the garden. 
In fact, we see in verse 2 of chapter 9, this words, they are given into your hand. This is language of conquest, language of subduing. Often when you read Old Testament descriptions of battles, of warfare, it talks about the defeated party being given into the hand of the conqueror. So man rules over animals as a conquering king. This includes, as we see in verse 3, man's right to use animals for food, to kill animals for useful purposes. Now there is a lot of growing confusion about this in our day. There are various environmental movements that seek to blur the distinction between people and animals and make such claims that the taking of the life of an animal is morally equivalent to taking the life of a person. As we see here very clearly, this is not God's order. This is not God's will. This is not how God intended the world to function. Man is given dominion over the animals. And we also see that man is given dominion over the plants, that man may eat plants and use them for the purposes which he pleases. Now there are some caveats. We see in verse 4, for instance, that man is not to eat meat with its blood. This is a theme that's repeated throughout the Old Testament ceremonial laws. It is clear from this, as well as the previous distinction of clean and unclean animals that Noah already recognized, that the ceremonial law, even though it's not fully revealed to us until the Mosaic Covenant, was known and functioning in times before, even in the time of Noah. But there is not just ceremonial law here. There is also aspects of moral law, as we see in verse 5, the moral law which binds all. And this regards the bloodshed of people. Any animal or person that takes the life of a person should die. So again, we see the qualitative distinction between man and animals. The killing and eating of animals is permissible and acceptable, but the killing of people is not. In fact, the price required for the shedding of a man's blood is the shedding of the blood of the killer, be it man or beast. So in other words, we have here the biblical mandate for capital punishment. The idea that murderers should be put to death. That is just punishment for murder. This too is often contested in our day. For various reasons, and some even with good intentions, they see the death penalty as something we shouldn't have. It's something that is more and more falling out of favor. It's going away in many U.S. states. Some don't support the death penalty because of corruption in the justice system or others because they take a more broad and universalized application of the Sixth Commandment. They see, thou shalt not kill, and assume that includes capital punishment. But here we see very clearly that as a part of God's own prescription for life in his world, capital punishment as justice for murder. Murderers forfeit the right to their own lives. If determined by lawful authorities that they have shed blood without cause, then God has commanded, as a part of his covenant for preservation and ordering of the world, that they should die. We see in all these commands of verses 1 through 7, how God wants this world under common grace, this world working towards its redemptive ends to be ordered. We see the continued dominion mandate. We see marriage. We see family. We see child raising. 
We see good and proper use of God's creation. Animals and plants for food, though reasonably, though temperately. And also the safeguarding and protecting of human life, the institution of justice. And when these things are not followed, it is rebellion against God and produces a world of chaos. I have mentioned how each of these commands has in various ways been undermined or ignored in our present world. And we see the chaos this produces. We have people committing brutal and violent crimes and receiving minimal consequences, which just incentivizes more crime and violence and disorder. We see the abandonment of the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. We see the breakdown of marriage where people don't get married, get married to someone of the same sex, or they think they can change their sex. All the various perversions of the created order and the dominion mandate that become so popular in our day. We see how people are devalued and animals are overvalued. Is our world more just? Is it more righteous? Is it more orderly because of these developments? I think the proof is in the pudding. When God's good purposes and good order are deserted, chaos reigns and people suffer. God does not give his commands because he does not want us to enjoy this life because he wants to unduly constrain or limit us. He gives us his commands to free us, to give us purpose and meaning and direction that is good. And so we should hold fast to these things and not be ashamed of them. But after God gives these commands, these purposes of his covenant, he also pours out his blessings and gifts upon man. And this brings us to our final point. After the covenant propitiation, preservation, and purposes, we come to covenant promises in verses 8 through 17 of chapter 9. We see that God does make promises. He gives blessings to creation in this covenant. We see the universality of the scope of this. It is, again, not merely with God's people or even with people generally, but with all creation. Again, this covenant ultimately serves the purposes of redemptive grace, but it does so in a way that blesses all creatures. The first promise comes in verse 11. The promise not to destroy the world again by a flood. Never again will God send such a global calamity, a global flood, to destroy the earth. Now just as a brief side point, this further undercuts an idea I introduced last week of a local or regional flood in the time of Noah, because local and regional floods still happen all the time. You can think of just a few months ago how there was severe flooding out on much of the west coast, or how every year we still get hurricanes which bring lots of flooding or more localized, smaller floods at various times. Probably even here you've seen floods at various times. So floods still happen. But part of this preserving of this covenant is that God promises he will not again flood the whole world. He will not subject the whole world again to the waters of judgment as he did in the days of Noah. Now, this does not mean that God will never destroy the world again. We know that the day of the Lord is coming when God will again destroy and purify the world, not with water, but with fire. 
But as long as this age runs, the world and its natural processes and its sustaining of life will continue. And second, we see that God seals this covenant with a sign. That sign is a rainbow. When rains come, as they often do, after the rains and as the clouds break, as the sun starts to poke through, we still see this sign. We still see rainbows after rainstorms as a reminder, the sign of God's promises that he has withheld the wrath and calamity that not only he would be able to do, but in many ways the world deserves. Now part of the gross perversion and rebellion of our day is that this sign of the rainbow, which was the very sign of God's continued restraint and preservation, is flouted by those who most egregiously rebel against this created and preserving order that God has made. It does show, though, just how great the grace and mercy and restraint of God is and how faithful to his word he is that he does not pour out his wrath by flood or other means for such blasphemy. God is faithful to his word, even in the face of the most gross faithlessness and rebellion of man. But that we see this restraint, that we see God's restraint and his promise of continued life and a continued world in this covenant, ought all the more to compel us to worship God and to love him and to serve the ultimate ends for which he preserves the world. Specifically, because the world continues, because final judgment and wrath is not yet poured out at this time, and because such great wickedness and abominations against God's will occur all around us, this calls us to mission to the world. It calls us to be salt and light. It calls us to bear witness to Christ, the mediator of the covenant of grace to which all these other biblical covenants direct us, and in whom alone is salvation and forgiveness of sins. And so... If you are here today and you do not belong to this covenant, if you do not belong to Jesus Christ, know that even though you might deny God, you live in His world and that the life that you have, the very breath in your lungs, the food you eat, all of the blessings of this life you enjoy, they do belong to Him. And God is worthy of your love and adoration and worship whether you give it to Him or not. And though God will not judge the world by a flood, again, death still comes for all. And one day, the final judgment of the world is coming. And so the call of the gospel to which this covenant points us, the call of the work of Jesus Christ is to repent of your sins and to believe in his name, believe in his once for all atoning sacrifice, which fully and finally washes away sins and turns away the wrath of God towards his people. But if you are in Christ today, the call is to be that salt and light in the world, to bear witness to Christ even in a world where wickedness continues and is glorified among men. While common grace continues, while the world goes along, it is in need of the redemption that only Christ can bring. And so may we all Believe in Christ, trust in Christ, worship Christ, and be faithful to proclaim Him and serve Him in all that we do. Let us pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this world that you have given us, that it gives us what we need, that it sustains life, that in many ways we can enjoy the good things that you have made. We thank you for our families, for they are a gift from you. We thank you for all of these preserving gifts that you have given to us. Most of all, I pray that the recognition of these gifts would direct us to faith in Christ and that they would direct us to love and service and obedience to you who have given us all of these gifts. We pray that you would cause us to be the salt and light in this lost and dying world that in many ways rebels against this preserving order that you have made. I pray that we would bear witness to Christ even if it is difficult and costly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.